So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. As we are very close to finishing up the chapter, but we won't quite finish it up today. We'll have to go one more week to finish the last few verses. While you're flipping there, me as a history nerd, I have to give you this opening illustration, so apologies in advance. On December 16, 1944, the German army made a rapid surprise offensive against the Allied forces with goal of pushing through and reaching the harbor city of Antwerp. So the battle in question, you may know the name of it, is the Battle of the Bulge. But here's the thing, the German forces never made it to their goal of the city of Antwerp. You see, there were seven major roads through the thick Ardennes forest on the way to Antwerp, which all converged on one small Belgian town called Bastogne. Retreating American soldiers fleeing from the Germans stalled just long enough for the 101st Airborne to stop and dig in at Bastogne just before the Germans arrived at the town on December 20th. And there, the 101st Airborne Division dug in, and they fought for their lives with no guarantee of rescue or support. Now, bad weather and cold weather meant that the superior U.S. Air Force that could have helped them couldn't even get off the ground. The fighting was severe, and there was little hope of survival. The German commander, General von Lutwitz, sent a long note to the 101st detailing terms for the Americans to surrender. They weren't the nicest terms, but they were terms nonetheless. But upon receiving the note from von Lutwitz, try saying that ten times fast, Brigadier General Anthony McAuliffe gave the now famous reply. And the letter simply said, to the German commander, nuts, the American commander. How polite. With no assurance of ever receiving rescue and little hope of survival, the 101st stuck it out in Bastogne. And after a brutal siege on December 26th, a spearhead of General Patton's 3rd Army finally pushed through to rescue the besieged division. The courage and the steadfastness of the 101st Airborne in the face of a dangerous enemy was really nothing short of amazing. And yet they had no guarantee that their confidence was justified. Well, as we continue in 1 Peter, the Apostle encourages us to stand firm in the faith despite any opposition we may face. But unlike the 101st Airborne, we have a certain hope and promise of rescue and glory. God has commanded you to stand fast in the face of all persecution and opposition. So to stand firm in your faith is to receive the promise of victory and eternal life. And that promise is not dependent upon you or your strength, but on the grace and love of a good God. So this is the thesis, because the Lord is the God of grace, you must endure. So with that introduction, let's read 1 Peter 5, verses 8 through 11. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
So this morning we're going to walk through three points as we study this text. And each way is a way to endure, and they are printed for you on your bulletin if you want to have them in front of you. And so the first point is endure by being sober-minded. So the first command in this passage, you may have noticed, comes rather quickly in verse 8. Peter commands you to be sober-minded. Now, this is not the first time that Peter has given you this exact same command in this book. Back in chapter 1, verse 13, Peter said, Being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So there, the call to sober-mindedness is the way in which you focus your heart and your mind on the glory to come, the future glory. Christ is returning soon, therefore you must live appropriately now, setting your hope in him. Then you move all the way into chapter 4, verse 7. And Peter says that the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. And again, the exhortation is to live a godly life now in light of the eternity to come. You are being prepared now for an eternal weight of glory in Christ. So here again, the call to being sober-minded now is intrinsically connected with the glory to come later. So part of what it means to be sober-minded is to arm ourselves for life in this world with a certain, with the knowledge of the certain hope of glory to, Christ, glory to come with Christ. That hope is the shield and the sword that you need in order to stand firm in the faith now. That hope of glory with Christ. But being sober-minded and focused on glory doesn't mean you misunderstand your current state in this fallen world. We are to take that vision of the future glory with Christ and we are to apply it to our current situations like a bandage on a wound. Not everything in the Christian life is smooth or perfect. In fact, part of being sober-minded is understanding that there are some dangerous and difficult things in this life. And because of that, the kind of sobriety that we need to know is that we need to know what we face so we can then apply our hope of glory correctly. Well, there are four things we're going to talk about that you need to know in order to be sober-minded. And the rest of this first point is to walk through those four things. So first, you need to know that you are beset with weakness and with imperfections. Now, I'm sure you've already picked up on this, but you are not in glory yet. And that means that you are not yet perfect in body, mind, or soul. You have physical, mental, and emotional flaws and shortcomings. And despite trusting in Christ, every part of you is still affected by sin and the fall. And that means you will struggle and you will wrestle with your health. Your emotions are never going to be perfectly in line. Your thinking Your reasoning, they will fail. And most importantly, you will continue to sin against the Lord and others in this life. Now, I don't say that to normalize sin and failure, to say, oh, it's okay, just don't worry about it. Quite the opposite. You need to know your current state if you are to fight against it. And one misconception about setting your mind on glory is that you cease to pay attention to what is going on here. But being sober-minded means taking the future hope of glory with Christ and rightly applying it now to your present situation, not forgetting about your struggles and your sins. 
ignoring your sins and issues or your suffering, that's not being heavenly minded. You need to know who you are now and what you face at this moment. You may be a new creation in Christ, but your own heart is still fallen and full of sin. So you need to know that you have an enemy living within your own heart. And your old nature is dying, but it can still bite. But it's not just the old man within you that seeks to attack you. Because the second big thing you need to know is that you have an external enemy as well. You have an adversary in addition to your sinful nature. The devil is Satan himself. His name means slanderer because that is what he does. He is a liar, he is the accuser, and he is the enemy of every saint in the church. Now the word adversary here, that word is used of legal opponents in a judicial court. That's the normal Greek use of that word. So the devil is the great accuser of the saints of God. He's like a prosecutor bringing charges against you before God. And you can see that if you go back and look at the book of Job. There we see Satan presenting himself before God in order to accuse the saints of sin. He desires to destroy the church and will attack the moment he sees a weakness. And it is he and the other demons that work in the fallen world to attack and persecute the church. And you need to understand that there is spiritual warfare going on constantly all around you. Therefore, be sober-minded and pray for rescue from the temptation of the devil. But you also need to know that his power, while powerful, is limited. Satan is not God. He is a finite and limited being. Unlike God, he cannot be everywhere present. He is not all-knowing, nor can he see everything. He is dangerous, yes, but he is also limited. So know you have an enemy, and an enemy who wants to attack you. And his main desire, his main goal is to try to make you deny Christ. The third thing you need to know is that other saints suffer too. Now, Peter says that other saints are suffering the same kinds of persecution and suffering throughout the world and throughout time. The evil world under Satan's influence is at war with the church continually. But you can also take heart in the fact that nothing you suffer is ever uniquely terrible. The whole church is with you in your suffering. You don't suffer because of failure or sin on your part. If you're persecuted for the name of Christ, then Peter says you are blessed. So you can take heart and you can sympathize with other saints as you suffer, knowing it is a result of loving Jesus in this calling world. The fourth and final thing in this point that you need to know is that God will establish you. As you hold firmly to the promises of the gospel and the hope of glory in Christ, the Lord makes you sober-minded. Look at verse 10. Peter affirms that you will suffer. But notice the timing of your trials in that verse. He directly contrasts the time of your suffering with the time of the glory to come. You suffer for a little while now but soon you will enter into eternal glory with Christ. The eternal, or the, sorry, the temporary struggles of this life 
They cannot compare with the eternal blessedness of what is to come. Do you understand what it means that you and me and all the saints will enjoy life with Christ in glory forevermore? Never ending, continuing forever. I'll be honest with you, my mind struggles to comprehend what that means, what that will be like. And it is easy to be overly focused on the present struggles so that we fail to see that bigger picture of glory. But if you compare eternity to the times of struggle now, the times of struggle now are barely going to be a blip on the timeline. And the further into eternity that we go, the smaller the time of suffering is going to appear. And if you can meditate on that, if you can meditate on glory with Christ forever, then everything else starts to be put into its proper place. It starts to be put into perspective in our minds and in our hearts. And at the end of the day, that is the way to be sober-minded as we address persecution and suffering in this life. Know who you are. Know who has called you, what he has called you to, and know who opposes you as well. And if you wrestle with those things, if you struggle and work through those things, the Lord will establish you. So let's look at point two. We talked about how to endure by being sober-minded. Now you must endure by being alert. So Peter gives the second of three commands right after the first. In verse eight, he says to be watchful. Now, the verb here refers to spiritual alertness. You must be aware of the spiritual realities going on all around you. Now, the same Greek word is used in many other places, and I'll talk about a few of them. Uh, it's used several times in Matthew 26 when Jesus told the disciples to watch and pray just before being betrayed by Judas. Now, instead of watching and praying, what did the disciples do? They fell asleep because they weren't just physically falling asleep. They were spiritually asleep at that moment. Paul uses this same word in Acts 20 when he warns the elders to be alert for the wolves that will endanger the sheep in the church. Then in Colossians 4, Paul told the church to be watchful in their prayer so that they will be able to discern the Lord's work in answering their prayers. And then finally, in Revelation 3 and 16, the verb is used and translated as wake up. And it's used in that context of wake up to prepare yourself for the coming of Christ as a warning that Christ is returning. So in all the occurrences of this word in the New Testament, the idea carries the same weight. Pay attention to the spiritual realities around you and the fact that Christ is coming back. And that includes not only the present realities, but what is to come. So just as a lookout, his duty is to watch for the enemy and to alert if he sees them. Well, your duty is to stay spiritually awake and alert. As Jesus said in Matthew 10:16, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, to be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So the church is surrounded by wolves. How then can we be wise as serpents and innocent as doves? Well, in this point, we're going to note three dangers to be alert and watch out for. So first, you must watch out for temptation. As we already noted in the first point, we are all fallen. We may be saints, but our old natures are still alive and kicking. 
We are still prone to sin and we are beset with weakness and frailty both physically and spiritually. And you need to recognize the ways in which your heart is prone to temptation and guard against that temptation. Now, second, you must watch out for trials and persecution. Trusting in the Lord to take care of you does not negate the responsibility of reading the times wisely. We're not supposed to be ostriches that stick our head in the sand and ignore whatever else is going on around us. You need to have an idea of what is going on around you in the culture. As you see times of persecution or difficult times coming for you, for your family, for the church, it gives you the chance to prepare. It gives you the chance to pray for strength, to encourage one another, to build one another up, and to become more resolute in your faith as you see the trial coming towards you. It's really the case for any suffering in this life. Often the Lord gives us hints at what is coming. And it's not wrong to use the idea that something feels off or something doesn't seem right to prepare yourself for suffering. Watch out for tough times. And third, and probably most importantly, there's a lion out there. There's a lion stalking about looking for prey to devour. The enemy wants to wreck your faith in any way he can. He's looking for any weakness to exploit. He's waiting for you to stop paying attention and to let your guard down. Possible forms of attack are varied, but they're examples of his work throughout the New Testament. Sometimes his works display themselves in odd and violent behavior toward the church's general persecution. Other times, especially with demonic possession in Scripture, there's an increase in self-destructive evil. We see the lion attack through stubborn and dangerous heretical doctrines. Other times there are powerful evil emotions and reactions that may have some demonic power behind them. Maybe it's simple division in the church and people insisting on their own way. Well, years ago I was on a mission trip up in West Virginia and we were gathered together after lunch praying at this old, uh, sweet older lady's house and we were doing a roof and some stuff inside, a bunch of different projects. And out of nowhere, her enormous adult son starts cussing, screaming, and acting like he's going to fight every single one of us. There was no physical cause for his outburst. Just out of nowhere. There was some serious spiritual warfare going on in a man with serious spiritual issues. And honestly, it's one of the most frightening situations that I have ever witnessed. But it's not always that obvious. It can just be a sense of spiritual unease. While visiting my grandmother in Salt Lake years ago, we went to the Mormon temple and tabernacle just to see the buildings. And I can't explain exactly what it was that I felt, but there was a dark spiritual heaviness that made me truly uneasy. And it's something I had never felt before and still haven't felt since. We need to be alert and watchful. But we also need to be careful talking about demons and about the devil. Because not everything evil is caused by Satan. Not all evil is from the devil, but Scripture warns us that he is at work in the unbelieving world. So while all three of those dangers are very real, none of them have the final word. None of them have power over you in the end. In verse 10, Peter gives you a promise that God will confirm you. The same God that is full of grace, who has called you to his eternal glory 
and who has all power and dominion, he will confirm you. He'd also say he will establish or permanently fix you. So how will God confirm you? How will he establish you? We face a lot of dangers in this life. Our enemy is technically stronger than we are. So what are we to do? Now, we've seen how to be sober-minded by knowing the dangers we face and how to watch out for them. And so now we can turn to the final point to see how to fight against the dangers. Because God will establish us as we resist the dangers. So point three, you must endure by resisting. So what is really happening when we face temptation? What is going on when persecution hits us? In some, the lion is roaring at us. He's prowling around. He's looking for a weakness and unwary victims. What's his goal? He wants to devour you. Now, Peter doesn't say explicitly what that means. But in context, it seems to be the destruction of your faith. He wants you to abandon and to reject Christ at, by any means possible. Persecution, suffering, and temptation, they're all meant to lead you to that outcome in Satan's eyes. So just as he once tried to do with Job, he wants you to curse and denounce God to his face. He wants you to denounce God as your Lord. That is his singular purpose in everything he does. That means that if you are, a, if you are to resist him, your faith is the key to the fight. Faith is the core of what will allow you to endure his attacks and resist. Peter commands you to resist him standing firm in your faith. You cannot resist with any human weapons, nor can any power within you provide you the strength that you need. Your resistance comes through trust in Christ alone, because he is the one who has defeated and bound Satan, and he is the one who has the power and authority over to rebuke him. Resistance is an active and an intentional effort. We cannot sit back like pacifists and call it resistance. You are in a war and you must arm yourselves for that war. Really a crucial passage in understanding and uh, this concept is in Ephesians 6. So I'd like you to turn over there to Ephesians chapter 6. So Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer 
and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. Notice the urgency and the soberness with which Paul writes those verses. We also see the same three themes, really, that Peter uses. Know what is really going on in and around you in the spiritual realm. Be alert and watch for the dangers. And when trouble strikes, resist or hold fast in your faith. And notice also the means of standing firm in those verses in Ephesians. We must put on the armor of God, which is the same really as standing firm in the faith. Truth, righteousness, the gospel promises, salvation, the word and prayer are the weapons of our warfare. So if we are to resist the devil, then we must cling to the promises of the gospel and the weapons that the Lord has given us. And it is only by clinging to the promises of Christ that we shall resist and endure. What is the result of our resistance? If we fail to fight, it is defeat. If we trust in ourselves, we will lose. If we do anything other than what Scripture commands us, we will fail. But if we resist by standing firm in the faith, God will give us the victory through Christ. James 4, 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So the same almighty God who holds all the power and dominion of the universe in his hand is the one who will strengthen and restore you. There's both a, a temporal and a future element to these promises. As we resist the devil and fight against our sinful hearts now, God will strengthen and restore our souls along the way. This is really the already not yet concept. We already receive blessings and grace now in the war. But a future day is coming when we will experience the fullness of our salvation and glory. The Lord will continue protecting us and rooting out the sin from our hearts throughout this life. But one day the victory will be complete and the work will be done. The war will be won and the enemy destroyed and that old nature gone. And on that day, the same one who restored, confirmed, strengthened and established you in this life will call you into his eternal glory forevermore. The current struggles, the current sins, the failures that you have, they won't make it through into that realm. They will stop at the end of this life. But faith in Christ, faith in Christ will make it through. The same faith that allowed us to endure to the end will become sight. And we will behold Jesus in all of his glory. And our response then must be our response now. All we will want to do on that day in his presence is offer him praise. To offer glory and worship to our Savior. So to the Almighty King who preserved us and finished the work He began in our hearts, we will turn around and we will give praise. And that promise of glory is not an empty promise. It's not just one possible outcome. It is a certainty. It is something guaranteed by the completed work of Christ on the cross. The victory has been completely and totally won already. And so what's the call? The call for you, beloved saints, is to persevere and endure. Because, the, because dwelling in the presence of the eternal 
God of glory. That is your reward. Standing in glory forever with Christ forevermore is what you're waiting on. And so stand fast in the faith now and delight in your king now and forevermore. Let's pray. All glorious, all majestic, almighty God, we give you praise this morning. But we also know that we are in a fallen world. Our own sin, that the, the world around us seeks to drag us down, that there's an enemy who attacks. So Lord, we pray for your grace and for your mercy, that we might stand fast in the faith, that we might resist the temptations of our own hearts and the lures of the devil, that you would carry us through to the day of glory. Because we know that you have, if you have given us your spirit, then it is sealing us for that day. So, God, work in our hearts. Carry us through to that day, but give us the strength we need to stand firm now. We know it is by your grace and not through our own efforts. So, Holy Spirit, work in us. And glory be to Christ now and always. In his name we pray. Amen.